Hi guys, Rob here, podcast editor for Everymind. This week's podcast is a conversation between founder Paul McGregor and Lee Chambers from Essentialize. Now, every Everymind podcast is amazing, but this was by far my favorite to edit. So much knowledge dropped, such an amazing conversation. If you think Everymind at Work could help your business, then head over to everymindatwork.com. If you found this episode valuable, don't forget to share with a friend and leave us a review on iTunes. And as ever, enjoy the show. So Lee, welcome to the Every Mind at Work podcast. How are you today? I'm well, thanks, Paul. Amazing to have you on. I know it's a busy Friday afternoon, like we were just talking about. Um, but how have you been? Obviously, this has been a tough year for everyone. How, how's, how's this impacted your mental health personally? Yeah, so you know what, Paul? It's been quite challenging. Um, I suppose at the same time, I've, I've been through a fair amount of adversity in my life so far. And from every challenge that I've kind of been through, being able to, you know, take a bit of learning about how to cope when things, you know, are changing, you know, in a dynamic way. And if anything, given the given the field of work that I'm in and my real passion and vision in empowering other people, uh, I really started to see it as an opportunity to do more of what I do uh, in, and really be able to help people that I wouldn't normally work with. Um, so for me, it's really kind of enlightened my crusade to try and, you know, bring mental health awareness, uh, bring awareness of diversity and inclusion and actually start to look at, you know, how we lead, how we manage, how we, how we you know, navigate business and how we navigate our own lives in a very, you know, very ever-changing landscape. Um, for me, it's, you know, forced me into positions of trying to become a teacher which has been a lot of fun trying to homeschool my children and homeschooling very quickly became home learning to set those expectations a little bit, you know, in, in a more realistic place. Um, but yeah, it's really been a chance to slow down and reflect. Um, obviously from a business perspective, uh, we lost clients. We had to refocus. We had to do more digitally. Uh, we've had to be agile, but it's been something that, you know, for, for us as a company and for me personally, uh, has been a time to really grow through the challenges and really step into them and be grateful for the things that we do have. Um, and my health has actually improved over, you know, this past year. So that's been a great uh, bonus for me. And there's been something that, you know, has really kind of highlighted that there is light even in the darkest times. Nice. And I, I can really relate to that, like you say, through, for any adversity or times of change, you know, you have those two decisions, right? You either kind of go one way or you go the other way of trying to embrace that change and, and look at it in a different way and pivot, adapt and and see, see as you say, the kind of light in the dark, you know, what are you grateful for and things like that. Um, and you kind of, you know, touched on it a little bit and hopefully you don't mind me going straight in with this this question. You know, I'm, I'm an open book and I've seen some of your stuff on LinkedIn. It looks like you're a pretty open book as well. Um, the adversity in the past, can you just kind of, you know, potentially discuss a little bit about your sort of journey leading up to to where you are today? Yeah, so, I mean, it's e easy to kind of go right back to the start. I was uh, born and raised on a council estate to mixed race uh, teenage parents. So if you kind of looked at the census, I was probably up against it a little bit from birth. But my parents both set me really strong values, a strong work ethic, um, and got me into a place to really appreciate trying to become more socially mobile and utilize my academic ability when I was young. I was curious, I was disruptive. It got me into some great conversations. It got me into a fair bit of trouble. 
Um, but I was the first one in my whole extended family to go to university, which was both a privilege and an awful lot of pressure. Um, for me as a young male, you know, 15 years ago, um, I never really spoke about my own emotions, my own mental health. I wasn't really particularly self-aware because I'd not really been brought up in that environment and had the frameworks and understanding of how to build that. Um, so I went to university and threw myself into big city life. Found myself really starting to struggle mentally with the expectations that were placed upon me, with some of the expectations that I placed upon myself. I started to feel like I shouldn't really, you know, have have life figured out. I was looking at making the adolescent to adult transition and trying to really figure out who I was from an identity perspective. And all that alongside some of the academic challenges from not applying myself the way that I should, you know, being a lazy boy for years, um, having to work alongside my degree to fund it, um, led me to really start to struggle with my mental health to a point where, uh, for me, I started to, you know, everything became about avoidance. Um, I had some significant challenges. I started to avoid going to work. I started to avoid all the social groups that I joined. I started to avoid my friends. And unfortunately, that actually led to me just avoiding life. And I locked myself in my university dorm and spent two weeks there not leaving at any point until security broke in and my parents took me home. And, you know, the first real adversity that I faced in life didn't really know how to handle it. Mm. I didn't know how to dig deeper into myself. I kind of felt like I'd tried to look and understand who I was and I simply didn't have the tools to start digging. Um, I've looked out to society to try and find some someone or something to model from until I started to find my way. But as a young black man, who's like a strange mix of entrepreneur, scientist and philosopher, I just saw football players, rappers and actors and no one who was really like me to model from either. And I look back on my own past and realized I'd never had any deep, meaningful conversations with other men in my life. No one else had been to university and understood. I just felt like I was trapped. Uh, but being taken home took a lot of that pressure off, gave me a chance to reflect. Uh, and I gradually built myself back up over time, starting to become more self-aware had to really start to, you know, start to take ownership and responsibility over learning how to navigate my own emotions, how to start to express those more healthily, how to identify who I was and realize that I wasn't going to have it all figured out. I'd have to gradually chisel my character through putting myself outside of my comfort zone. And that kind of highlighted that I need to go back to university and, and you know, go and do the units that I'd failed go and achieve, go and prove to myself that I could go through adversity and come out the other side. So I went back and did. And graduating was, you know, it was realisation of the fact that you can get into a really bad place. But if you keep looking up, when you even when you're in the depths of that trench, there's another mountain in front of you to climb. And that's how it felt. And then that kind of led me to, you know, I, I managed to build up a level of confidence in myself going through that. That was probably bigger than beforehand. Uh, I managed to get onto a graduate scheme at the cooperative bank, which was really, for me, a way to be able to give back and become a financial advisor, help people with their financial well-being, work with projections and statistics, which is something I really enjoy. Uh, and I managed to get through a very competitive scheme and 
you know, was one of the graduates who entered in 2007, only six months later to be spat back out by the economic crash and forced to move back home into my parents' back bedroom where you can't even fit a single bed because the boiler cupboard's too big. <laughs> and for me, you know, it was like, again, it felt bad, you know. I'd lost my opportunity. I'd lost a career at that point and couldn't get back into finance. Um, and, you know, that again left me in a place where I felt, you know, a bit of a victim, a bit like I was, uh, yeah, a bit like I was feeling a bit hopeless and not particularly optimistic. But then I realised that, you know what, Lee, you're right at the start of your career. You've got no overheads and no responsibilities. You can adapt and start again. Feel for those who've got 20-year careers who are fully chartered and accredited and now they can't get a job with all that knowledge and they've got a family and a house and a mortgage and a car to pay for and you've not got that, so you should be grateful. And I was. And that put me in a position where I went working in local government to build up some funds, used those funds to set up a video game business that took off in a big way and allowed me, you know, a lot of financial freedom to go and learn different qualifications, to work in different industries. I moved into the charity sector and did some really meaningful work there. I went and worked in elite sports and got to see the complete other side of the world, elite performance, you know, scientific experimentation. Um, and for me, all of a sudden in, in these years, everything felt like it was going right. I felt like I'd made it. I've fallen into a bit of a trap of, trap of success, if I'm honest, Paul. Um, and then in 2014, it all really came home. When I lost the ability to walk, my immune system attacked my body and left me in hospital, you know, pretty much paralyzed. And through that experience, it was very difficult. Um, at the time, my son was 18 months old. My wife was six months pregnant with my daughter and she was coming to the hospital to, you know, help me do basic things like wash myself, go to the toilet, feed me. Um, you suddenly become incredibly understanding of just how much other people are pivotal to your success. Um, and learning to walk again was, it was a challenging experience. It was painful. It was difficult mentally. Uh, but I had my daughter who was born when I was in walking rehab and, you know, I really anchored into the, the reasoning why I wanted to take her first steps with her. And to do that, I needed to be walking as well. So I, you know, did what I needed to do in rehab. I went into intensive physio on those mornings when it was hard. I kept going because you'll do more for other people than you'll do for yourself. And, you know, my family mean a lot to me and they were there for me in my time of need. And I wanted to be there for them. And the beauty is that a few weeks before she started walking, I managed to walk a mile unaided myself and really felt that, you know, in tears, sweating next to a lamppost, that if I can do this, then what else can I achieve? And that has been, those three big adversities have become, you know, the defining transition of me deciding to set up a business that ultimately helps other people for adversity, that helps people to become more aware of the health, whether it be physical, mental, social, emotional, financial, and really start to understand just how important these are. And so often as human beings, we let them compound in a negative way. And then at some point, life shows you that, you know, you, you've neglected that. And for me, that was quite early in my journey. Uh, losing the ability to walk was probably the best thing that's ever happened to me because it really helped me to define my path. 
but now on a mission to help other people, to empower them, to enable them. And it, it's incredibly fulfilling work, Paul, in a similar way to yours and your own experiences have brought you into, into your world of work. And you know what, when we combine our, our lived experience with our qualifications and our industrial knowledge, it allows us to make you know significant change and I'm incredibly passionate about doing so. Amazing. I don't know where to start with that, Lee. It's, you know, it's, I'm glad I asked you that question is all I'm going to say, because I'm sure, you know, people listening to this or watching this will, will be able to, to feel inspired. But also, I think, you know, your, your story also gives people that hope, right? Because the, the, the way I see that is it's like you've been hit down and then you're slowly coming back up. And then I know what life's going to do to you. It's going to throw you back down again and then you come back out. I know what it's going to do. And, and, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I can really relate to that. And, you know, I've had similar experiences, as you say, where when you feel like times are getting okay, then something massive happens and you're almost back to square one. Is is there any any anything that you kind of remember that made you hold on in those dark times? Like, was there like a key part that you remember that kind of, you know, those those depths of that sort of, you know, the struggle, you mentioned like your daughter, you mentioned like a why, was that kind of catalyst to getting through those sort of darker times? Yeah, so I mean, I think the, what we need to kind of remember is that it's only natural as a human being when these things happen to really feel negative emotions. Mm. So in each of those scenarios, the first things that you feel are anger, frustration, why me, why now? You know, as much as it's nice to imagine that, you know, you've gone through some adversity and you become enlightened and you're just able to go, oh, this is the best thing that's happened to me. It's not true. <laughs> in the actual, you know, eye of the storm, you are feeling it in a lot of ways. And I suppose for me, what I actually realize is the only way to be able to gradually turn suffering into growth is that in that initial period, you need to find a healthy way to express those negative emotions. So in my initial period after, you know, being taken home from university, what I started to do was write down how I felt. And it was hard looking at, on that piece of paper and realizing, well, is this how you feel? But by writing it down, it helped me to process it. It helped me to then talk to other people about it in a way that I'd never been able to before. And that process of talking, writing, it gradually allowed me to kind of gain a, gain a level of understanding of what I needed to do to move forward and not be stuck ruminating on what had happened. I actually started to become reflective through talking and writing and learning. And I kind of took that approach again. When I lost the ability to walk, you know what? I was in a hell of a lot of pain. I was in a lot of shock at first because it just happened. And, you know, it happened so quickly that I'd been telling myself I was fine. And then my five foot four mother-in-law came around to the house and saw me like not able to properly move and literally dragged me to A&E. And sometimes you need other people around you to be aware and really just make those decisions for you because you're not always in a place to make those decisions. And you realize very quickly that you're lucky to have that support network because not everybody does. Um, but the kind of, I suppose for me, especially when I lost the ability to walk and I went into walking rehab, I'd become grateful because I'd realized how ungrateful I'd been for walking until I lost it. Mm -hmm. And I suppose you always get that bounce that allows you to look up to where you're going in, in the kind of, in the depth of the wave. 
A lot of people are still looking down and everyone has their own suffering journey while they process grief, while they process anguish, while they process disgust, while they process whatever they're going through. Um, but for me, I sat in a room with eight people in walking rehab. And at this point, I've come to an acceptance that what had happened had happened. And I had to take ownership of my own health outcomes and responsibility. And it's that acceptance, Paul. It's hard to accept things that have happened to you. But if you can gradually get to a place of acceptance, it gives you the foundation to commit to make it better. Mm. And for me, there was three of us in that walking rehab waiting room who had our heads up. We were thinking about the possibilities and the options because we'd accepted where we were at and kind of committed to getting ourselves back on our feet. There was five people who still had their heads down and they were still processing that suffering. And it was the three of us who had our heads up who moved into intensive physio the quickest. And that became almost like a visual understanding for me that you have to get and process that suffering to a point where you accept it. Mm. And once you're there, you can start to, you know, really design elements of the future. You can start to attack the challenges. You can start to, you know, get clarity and see the obstacles and the barriers you're going to face and start to think, how are you going to navigate over those? And I think that, you know, everyone has their own journey with that. And you're going to hit those, you know, you're going to hit those journeys in so many times in your life because I almost like to think about it that, we, we like this idea that life will be a straight line, gradually creeping upwards as we, you know, ascend in wisdom and knowledge and all these things that increment as we get older. But really, life's like a heartbeat, like an ECG, up and down, up and down, up and down. And, you know, you spend lots of time at the top of a heartbeat, but you spend lots of times at the dip as, as well. Mm. And, I you know, I continually tell myself that, while I might wish it to be a comfortable straight line, if my heartbeat was a straight line, I'd be dead. Mm. And that up and down beat of a heart is what keeps me alive and keeps me making a difference. And as I've gone through more of those, Paul, the impact that I want to make, being very clear on the values that I hold, really help you to stay grounded even when you're at the top and give you so much fortitude when you're at the bottom mm. and just give you hope and optimism for a future, even when things look really bleak outside. Yeah. I love that. It's, it's acceptance is something that I have learned a lot about over the last couple of years. And, you know, I, I, I'm sure it's the same as you, right. You almost sometimes become quite fixated on being better. Mm. And when you're fixated on being better, when you're not good, you beat yourself up for, for not yeah. being better and, and and that's quite a negative place to be and um my brother he had a an accident at work about nearly four years ago that left him brain damaged um he was in hospital for 12 months you know couldn't even you know see communicate any of that um and even today you know he's, he's still my brother's in a wheelchair he's kind of you know on his own journey but one thing my brother has done amazingly is acceptance which is like you've said, you know, never have I heard my brother moan that he's in a wheelchair. And this is someone who walked to work one day and then everything changed like that. And his natural acceptance of the situation has meant that he hasn't been in, he's, he's had his bad times, right? But he hasn't been in that victim mode. 
like why me why has this happened to me he's purely okay physio every day intensive i'm seeing a bit of improvement i can get there i can get there and and like you said that helps me put a lot of my stresses into perspective now as well you know when i'm why isn't that person emailing me back you know <laughs> does that matter no of course it doesn't matter but like our minds tell us that it does and and I think, you know, your now mission of, of helping more people understand it the way that you understand it, you know, how do you, how do you do that? Because, you know, especially if a HR professionals listen to this or someone in an organization wants to make their team, you know, almost deal with diversity and change in a different way. What, what advice have you got for them? Yeah, so I suppose a lot of my work kind of surrounds the foundational aspects of well-being. Because what I've found in my experience is the ability to navigate change actually requires us to be well. Mm. And to be well actually has a significant, you know, significant aspect across a, a ratio of different things. Again, you got physical well-being through to your mental well-being. Having a stable platform in terms of well-being is incredibly important when it helps to, you know, when, when adversity comes along, basically, mm. like I remember my doctors saying to me, look, Lee, you're in a place where you're going to get back on your feet quicker because of how well conditioned you were beforehand. Mm. And that's really stuck with me. Going through mental health challenges made me more mentally resilient. Being well physically conditioned allowed me to, you know, recover physically quicker. So it's going into companies and saying, look, well-being impacts your performance. It impacts you, you know, your, your agility. It impacts so many things. If you've got an interconnected well-being strategy that brings it all together in a congruent way. And obviously a lot of the stuff I deliver is my story tied in to my kind of, you know, qualifications in psychology, in human performance, and really kind of binding that together and taking people on a little journey in an engaging way. It's not just another workshop or masterclass that, you know, heightens some awareness, but doesn't really leave people with some memories to take and some kind of actionable elements to go forward. And my biggest thing to, you know, HR professionals is at the minute, I'm doing quite a lot, to, a lot of work to help HR professionals because I understand the stresses that you're under. And for so many HR professionals at the minute, their well-being is struggling. Mm -hmm. And a lot of companies are expecting, oh, well, you do well-being strategy and you do change management and you do people and you do coaching so you can do all that for yourself. Mm. You need to make sure that you've got some space for yourself as a HR professional, some peer support, someone who understands. And really, you, to, to give great you know great things to your people you need to be you know making sure that you've got something in your cup to give as well yeah. um and it's you know boundaries expectations there's a lot to manage uh but yeah my methodology really is bring lived experience in put you know some uh some theory and some psychological elements into it and then bring some knowledge from industry and craft it so it's engaging and speaks to the challenges of your employees looks at what they want to participate in, really looks at how it's going to embed in an organization over a long period of time by actually having people take it and champion it and build communities around it because it can't just be a tick box exercise. 
and make a significant difference to KPIs and key happiness indicators and the other things that you want to really evolve going forward. Yeah, I love that. And you can see that in so many different ways. Like I talk a lot about the reactive way of approaching mental health, you know, and you look at the reactive way of approaching mental health from a society point of view is, you know, I can go to the doctors and I'll probably be on a waiting list for whatever, six, seven, <laughs> eight months of therapy, right? But, you know, in my own personal experience, in my dad's case, when something bad happens, then you get therapy a bit quicker. And it's almost like people have to get worse to get better. And then the reactive approach of, as you say, an organization, we don't have a mental health problem. You know, no one talked about mental health, so we're not going to do anything about it. And then all of a sudden, someone's struggling. Now we're reacting and we've got to do something about it. But then also, as you just said, the reactive approach that we take to our own mental health of I'm not doing anything about it until until I you know necessarily have to. So I think when you're looking at your kind of approach there, as you've just sort of said, um, it's so important to have those foundations in place, like the foundations of your own well-being and the foundations of the organization's well-being. So like you say, if, if, if a, a company implements a new initiative, but the company well-being structure isn't in place, it's just going to fall flat the same way that if as an individual, I read a self-help book, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden I'm going to be extremely mentally healthy because the foundations aren't there either. So yeah, totally relate to that. And as you said, with HR professionals, you know, we work with them and big part of our offering is actually supporting them because it baffles me how companies are like staff morale needs boosting. Can you do something about it? You know, <laughs> what, what are we going to do about it? And, you know, don't worry about your mental health. If you've got to focus on, you know, hundreds, 200, 300 employees, mental health, you know, health and sort them out. So I think we're definitely, definitely on, on, on the same page there as well. And also, you know, a lot of your work um, from what we've sort of seen as well, is sort of in the BAME community as well. Yeah. And, you know, we talk a lot about stigma with mental health in general. Um, but, you know, how much of, of, you know, stigma in a way and the stigma surrounding mental health, um, how much do you think that impacts the BAME community as well at work? Yeah, so I, I think it's, it's multi-layered, Paul. Firstly, the, the kind of organisational cultural aspects of well-being, because an organisational culture actually is one of the foundational aspects of organisational well-being. Because the ability for those spaces to be created, for those difficult conversations to be had, for people to feel like they're included and belong and have a level of autonomy and appreciation for the work that they do, play a massive part. If we kind of look out at the second level, out, out to BAME communities, I mean, culturally, there are still, and you know, there is a lot of stigma. And in some of the work that I've done on a community level, it's very difficult to engage BAME communities to mental health awareness workshops. Mm. It still carries uh, a cultural stigma if you are seen, you know, integrating into those kind of aspects. So what we decided to do is do things differently. It's gradually over time, people like me, people of colour sharing their experiences and being open, honest and vulnerable that have started to open up conversations wider in the community. But when it comes to actually activities, what we've realised is in a very similar way to men and mental health, mental health in BAME communities is the seed is planted when it's attached to an activity that has a level of gravitas in the community. So we currently run groups with Asian ladies 
and we wanted to do, run some suicide awareness. But firstly, it required us to have it advertised in the right places, which is not always the easiest thing to do. Secondly, just advertising suicide awareness will not get people to sign up. It mm -hmm. simply seems too abrupt, too, you know, too difficult to talk about. So what we did is we put on gardening classes. We put on cooking classes where we gradually introduced mental health topics into an activity and a hobby that was really engaging. And they started to open up and talk about their experiences while doing something they felt comfortable doing that they enjoyed. And it brought a difficult and stigmatized topic into a conversation and opened up a space, creating that space that's so difficult to so often create by bringing it in to something that already exists and something that's enjoyed and something that is seen as a hobby that is productive and proactive. Mm -hmm. And it's very similar when we look at the stuff that we do with men, we're quite often attaching it to sport, attaching it to, you know, male social activities and come and play five aside and have a, you know, chat about mental health and a beer on the side. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, it's all about more often than not meeting people where they're at yeah i love that yeah a lot of it comes and it's like you need to bring yourself to this level and it actually pushes people away where actually if we say we're going to meet you where you're at and start to gradually introduce these topics and let you create the space to become more aware yourself and maybe you'll start to actually look and do a bit of self-learning around it and not just, you know, fall into the sphere of listening to experts and, you know, because again, when we're looking at all so many of these aspects, when people start to get a bit curious about them, become more aware, it really builds their self-awareness and they become more able to navigate their emotions and navigate the mental health. And it becomes a little bit of a personal pursuit for them. And then they share that within the community, they share their journey. And it really opens up conversations that are difficult to have, but are so needed as we look to erode the stigma. Yeah, I love that. And again, you know, so much of what, what we do at Every Mind at Work is, is, is looking at stigma. And I'm sure you'll agree with this. So many training providers out there, you know, not, not all of them, but a lot of them do not even mention stigma. Organizations shy away from stigma because you and I know that's not a quick fix. That's not a tick. That's not a, you know, light bulb moment that all of a sudden Sigma is going to disappear. It's, it's a, it's a full on approach to strategy. You know, it's going to take time. You know, you're up against, as you say, cultures and generations, you know, and everything else, demographics. And, and when we look at stigma, exactly the same as what you've just said, you know, if you want to run a session of, of mental health, and you advertise it as a mental health session, you know, for some people, that's going to be great. It's going to attract people in, they're going to listen to it, they're going to want to get involved. But for many others, they're going to see mental health, and they're going to say, no, 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 I'm not going to listen to that. I don't need to, you know, I kind of always talk about mental health, I almost associate that very closely to mental illness. And yeah. then mental illness, my association growing up was straight jackets, padded cells, yeah. you know, what you're conditioned to believe. So yeah, we, we advise exactly the same thing. And, and, you know, with men in particular, you know, I've done lots of work with the charity calm, 
you know, and, and the way they approach it, like, you know, I did, I did something with them with the FA. We went and met some England footballers and, you know, we encouraged them to talk about it over dinner with other people with lived experience. And I went to one of their comedy nights where you've got guys doing comedy and everyone drinking beers and laughing. Mm. And then halfway through, you've got someone sharing their story about, you know, being, you know, struggling with depression as a man and football and, and, you know, encouraging conversations as part of a, a daily you know, approach is a much better way than, as you say, doing one mental health session on mental health awareness week and saying we're tackling stigma. So it's like you say, it's, it's approaching it in a completely different way, isn't it? Yeah. And I think again, like you said, the kind of the etymology, unfortunately, mental health tends to push away towards mental illness, towards, you know, that kind of vision of how things used to be. Um, but well-being also, in the same way, pushes over towards positive but fluffy, non-tangible, um, you know, more holistic but not holistic in 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 that own way. And it it's really that's the beauty of, of calm. Nobody wants to live miserably, mm-hmm. and it doesn't single and stigma people out for doing so. Yeah, and that's where the power of the language that we use in these areas, because the truth is, stigma doesn't sell. Uh into businesses very well Uh but at the same time the work that we do really looks to anchor in to the benefits for a business from a performance aspect but also just from a human aspect and the biggest part of my work is bringing humanity back to the workplace Uh because for too long people roll up to the doors drop the human off outside put a mask on and go into work and as, for as long as that kind of culture has been propagated, it's, uh, you know, our, our mental well-being has been impacted because we can't authentically express ourselves at work and feel like we belong and bind together as other humans. Yeah. So that's kind of like our mission, Paul, as we push forward. And that requires us, us to turn up as human and to actually be human when delivering and not expecting that we know it all and not thinking that we know everyone's unique position but actually giving people the space, the permission, the authority to actually share a little bit themselves in a place where they feel like they can, where they feel like there's a level of transparency and they're not being judged. And as we look to bring that forward, you know, every mind at work essentialized uh, are doing, you know, work that looks at it differently, but is really trying to raise those conversations to erode the stigma and truth be told, to make an impact based off our own journeys and the things that we've been through as well. Yeah, and I think, you know, I'm sure you can relate to this as well. It's when, when I look at stigma and when I try and explain it to people, you know, I, I think to the time that, you know, I was at my lowest, this was whatever, a couple of months after, you know, my dad's suicide and I, I, went, I went to work. And as you said, I, I, honest to God, I used to drive to work on my own, cry my eyes out, listen to songs me and my dad used to listen to. Five minutes, I would pull up, I'd, I'd wipe my eyes, and then, and then I'd go into work, and I'd be like, hey, hey, and I would be the, the kind of that, that loud, eccentric kind of, you know, confident, you know, nineteen-year-old who's just started this, this, this job, and never did I talk about my emotions or how I felt, and, I, and then I look at, at why I didn't, and it was because no one else was. So no one else is talking about it. So I'm sitting there saying to myself, well, this is only me then, you know, I'm the, 
the mental one. I'm the the crazy one. I'm the one who's the only one who's struggling here. So I'm going to keep it to myself. And then I'd go out with my friends, you know, and we'd be drinking and we'd be laughing and we'd be joking. And, and inside I'm, I'm hurting and I'm saying to myself, well, they're all fine. So it's just me. And, and then you don't, you don't talk about it. You hold it to yourself. And, and all that takes, and you know that, it's just one person. Like if one of my friends was quite open and honest, then yeah. I, might said, I might pull him aside actually later and, and say that I'm struggling as well. And the reality was, you know, I'm still friends with all of my friends from then. And, and now I'm very vocal and probably too vocal, right? But, um, <laughs> but, but they're honest with me. And, and equally, they've all said, well, I, I was struggling at that time. I was going through something. Why didn't you ever talk to me about it? Because I was going through something. And it was just because that no one was talking. It was silent. So that stigma. And you're like, I'm on my own. Equally, they're saying, well, Paul's doing fine. And he's just lost his dad. He's, he, I'm, I'm the one who's, you know, and, and, and everyone's sort of suffering on their own. So like you've said, and I'm sure, you know, you've seen it with the work that you do with the, that lived experience. It's like, it only takes one person to then encourage another person to encourage another person. And then slowly it starts to evolve, doesn't it? Yeah. And, and we run some uh, male leader workshops and ultimately by sharing stories, people share things they've never shared be- shown before. They all of a sudden feel like they have permission to do so. And it only, like you said, it only takes one person to plant the flag in the sand and other people feel like that's not vulnerability, it's strength. Mm-hmm. I can do that as well. And the beauty is that when people do that, it becomes a shared, shared human experience because we all know that the biggest challenges in mental health is when you think it's just you. Mm. And that is such a barrier to being able to share, to be able to process, to be able to talk. And when we feel like that, we actually feel like sometimes we can talk, but we won't be listened to because other people won't understand. And as we gradually build these conversations and more people talk and the stigma slowly starts to erode, like my biggest thing is we don't just need people to talk. We also need people to listen. And I think that as we gradually find people asking those questions, it's helping them to be able to listen actively and really be present when people are sharing their stories. Love that. I could talk for ages on this. and I'm sure you could as well. Um, I'm just going to ask you two more, two more questions. Um, you mentioned journaling earlier, so I'm, I'm interested to hear. Um, what tools do you currently use to kind of nurture your own mental health? Um, so for me, I still journal to this day. Um, it's gradually changed and evolved over the years. Um, now, I actually journal probably more as a reflective tool to remind me what I've done, what I've achieved, what I need to learn from. Um, but for me, I take breaks and schedule my days to be able to disconnect from technology that's massive for my own mental well-being I walk every evening to just help me process everything that's gone on during the day and you know reduce any anxiety levels before I go to sleep because for me obviously relearning to walk again has required quite a lot of you know physical work on myself in terms of my nutrition my movement and my sleep because now I'm back walking, thankfully, but more than anything this year, I've managed to come off my medication that's been controlling my immune system, which during the pandemic has been has been such a bonus for me and my health going forward. But sleep 
is absolutely massive uh, for my emotional balance, for my hormonal regulation. And I spent years journaling what different foods did to my mood. And that has given me an incredible acuity for what energizes me, what Mm -hmm. drains me, what sets my inflammation off, what can I tolerate a little bit of. And just journaling that has allowed me to really listen to my body as a bit of a feedback loop. And that has allowed me to listen to my mind and be so much more aware of when I need to take a break, of when I need to slow down a little bit and, you know, what I actually need to do to look after myself. And through that is another thing that I kind of share through my workshops. It's just heightening that awareness of all the messages that our bodies send on a daily basis. Because if we start to, you know, understand why we feel like we do, why we have the thoughts that we do, why our behaviours come from that and why our beliefs impact our interactions once we start to understand ourselves and treat ourselves like a massive experiment suddenly we just become we become wiser about ourselves and it helps us to become more understanding of others Mm, i love that it's it's when you talk about self-awareness people almost sometimes think you can just become self-aware overnight right (laughs) that's a perfect example of, of of how you've developed self-awareness by writing stuff down and by reflecting and by looking at what foods do this. And, and I, I love the fact you said about scientists, cause I always say the same, I become this mad scientist, you know, just, just like, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to try this. 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 And, and there was times where I was rash and there was times where I was obsessed and, and it probably wasn't great to be like that. And, you know, I do believe the reason why I was like that is because the biggest fear I've got is I'll end up like my dad, right? So I was like, I want to do as much as I can to not get in that place. But I also look back on those times and, and I just, it was so helpful of saying this helped, this didn't help, this helped, this didn't help. And then, you know, those bad days that I have and you have, and you know, you're still on your journey, I'm still on my journey. You've now got a different self-awareness of I'm feeling this way, but I think it's because of this. And you can kind of try and figure out yourself. So I love that. And, and just, I'm curious on the journaling side of it. Have you, do you just use a, a, a book or do you have like a guided journal One many of the ones out there already? Yeah. So I've had a guided journal. I've had a bullet journal at one point. Uh, now I just use a Smithson notebook. Nice. I do the same. Like this is mine here. Like I did all, I did all of the, the guided journals and in the end I was just like, no, I just, just, yeah. just, 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 right. just behind me. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Um, and then last question, what is the one piece of advice you'd give to the 10-year-old Lee? Oh, wow. It would actually be don't take advice and don't conform. Mm. So like we just said, so much of my understanding has come from experimenting myself. And yet we live in a world where we're continually told that the experts will tell you what you need, where if you've got a problem, there's someone out there who can find the solution. And because education tells us, well, you need to find the answers, put them down on paper, you'll get through to the next stage of your life. We don't get good at asking ourselves questions and experimenting. And I would tell myself, don't worry, you're not gonna have it all figured out ever, but just put that lab coat back on, wire up that little circuit, get that Bunsen burner lit and experiment. Don't stop just because you've grown up. Well, I love that. Lee, this has been so fun. Um, where can people find out more about you or on the work that you do? Um, where's the best places? 
the best places would be essentialize.co.uk or leechambers.org. And on both of those websites, you'll find my services, my blogs, and my social media handles. Cool. Awesome, Lee. Thank you so much. We have to connect again. I, I want to continue this conversation, but um, I, I really appreciate you taking the time out for today's podcast. Thank you, Paul.